You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Time for American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com. How's everybody doing? My name is Alex. We are here a little early today on this lovely, lovely, lovely Wednesday afternoon here in Royal Oak. My guest tonight uh, joining us uh, is poet Wynn Cooper. Wynn, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Uh, where are you calling from? Are you calling from Boston? Uh, yeah, I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is just... Barely outside of Boston, about two miles, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I always get started uh, with the exact same question every interview. That question is, where were you born? I was born in Mount Carmel Hospital in Detroit. That's right. You were you you uh, you spent your early life in Michigan. That's correct. I did. I was. My parents lived in Ferndale when I was born, and then when I was one, we moved out to Rochester, and that's where I grew up. Ah, so you're familiar with this whole area then. You, uh, it, you've probably had driven by this very uh, studio back when it was an accounting office uh, back in the day. I probably, I used to, I lived in Royal Oak for a while, so I lived on West Street, I think it was. Um, and you'd say, I worked at a, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so you, you, you grew up uh, in the, uh, in the Metro Detroit area and you stayed, like you said, you, you moved to Rochester and then you were living in Royal Oak. So, uh, I mean, just tell us about that. Well, I had um, moved to Utah to go to college and then to Virginia to go to graduate school and then back to Utah to go to more graduate school. And then before I moved to Vermont, I moved back to Michigan for a couple of years. Uh, And at that time, I worked for Les Autours, a restaurant in Royal Oak, and I had an apartment in Royal Oak. Um, that restaurant was owned and run by Keith Famey, who went on to some fame later as he was on the first Survivor show, I think it was, you know, one of the first reality shows. I seem to remember a, got, a contestant named yeah, Keith. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Keith Famey. He got kicked, even though he was a you know famous chef, he got kicked off the island because they ran out of food and they had to drop rice from a helicopter, and then he screwed up cooking the rice. And so they kicked him off the island. Bummer. That goes that um, goes back, man. That's I can't believe the first season of Survivor was like twenty years ago, almost. It's like eighteen, yeah, nineteen I years think, ago now. I think so. <laughs> um, and anyway, then I moved from uh, Royal Oak to Vermont, where I taught at Bennington College, and then at a place called Marlboro College. And then about five years ago, my wife and I moved to Boston. So here we are. So you've been you've been all over then. 
Yeah, I've, I've been a few places. <laughs> um, what uh, when you were growing up? Uh, what were you into? Like, what what was your uh, what were your childhood interests? <laughs> um, well, I played baseball in little league, and I rode my bike a lot. And then when I was in, I don't know, maybe fifth grade or sixth grade, I got a mini bike. Uh, you know, a little motorized bike, small, like a small motorcycle. I don't know if they, people still have those or if they still call them that, but that was really my thing when I was a kid. It was just riding all over the place on that little bike. Um, and, you know, and then I, I got into reading uh, um, in elementary school. I published my first poem when I was in fifth grade. Then I had a poem read on WXYZ radio in Detroit when I was in junior high. And then I took a class at Wayne State when I was in high school, a poetry class, and they ended up publishing some of my poems in the college literary magazine at Wayne State. So because I was always told that I was good at poetry, I have stayed with that, you know, to this day. Um, so anyway, but that's, yeah, I can't really think of too many other things I was into as a kid. Except for, you know, I was really into rock and roll. I listened to music all the time. Um, and I read the rest of the time. Those were the those were the two things I did. And I'm, you know, and I'm still read and listen to music all the time. So I guess some things never change. Yeah. Uh, what kind of a student were you? Um, I was pretty good. I, you know, was kind of a screwed up kid in high school. And so I didn't go to class all the time. And I could have done a lot better if I had applied myself, but I, you know, I did well enough that I got into college and my first year, my freshman year at the university of Utah, which I went to because I was a hardcore skier and I wanted to go to a college where they had really good skiing nearby. And so my first year of college, I didn't take all that seriously. I just took skiing seriously. And I, I think I skied like 70 or 80 days my freshman year and then I realized I really liked college and I liked, I was an English major. And so I cut way, way down on my skiing and just, you know, applied myself to school and then ended up going to get a, a master's degree after that. And then I went back to Utah into a PhD program, which I almost finished. I got through four years. I published my thesis, which was my first book. But then I ran into some political problems with some of the professors. And so I was told I should just drop out. So I did. <laughs> and, so, and, uh, and that was your PhD that you dropped out of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. I, I don't really miss having it. <laughs> right. You got your master's. So that's, and did it, was it your master's? Was that when you were at uh, Holland's college? Uh, yeah, it is exactly. Um, it was a one-year program, and there were some great uh, writers, you know, fellow students in there that I still stay in touch with today, including Madison Bell, who's a very well-known novelist, and he's the guy that I ended up making two CDs with. We wrote a whole bunch of songs together and made a couple CDs, and, you know, they did okay, which was great. Yeah, we'll, but, yeah we, we will get to your all question, that. Yes, I, I went to Holland College and, and lived in Virginia for a year. Um, what did uh, your parents do for a living when, when you were growing up? Uh, my dad was a tool and die maker in Troy, I believe it was. 
And my mom was a teacher's aide in a couple of elementary schools in Rochester, where we lived. Um, and my mom was a homemaker for many years, and then she got a job as a teacher's aide, um, probably to keep an eye on me, because she ended up working at the school that I went to the first half of elementary school, and then I moved to a different school, and then she moved to the same school. So she kind of followed me around, which was a little bit irritating. Yeah. <laughs> Are you an only child? <laughs> no, I have three sisters, uh, two older sisters and a younger one, and they all live in suburban Detroit. And my mom still lives in suburban Detroit. She's 95 and still going strong. Alrighty. Uh, you you mentioned uh, that you had your first poem published in, in fifth grade. Was that when you started writing poetry or had you been writing poetry for a while at that point? Well, that's a good question. That was so long ago. That I don't really remember. I, I, you know, I might've been writing before that, but um, I know that I was obviously writing in fifth grade and they had a, believe it or not, I don't know if schools still have this, but they had an elementary school uh, like a, a newspaper, you know, a school paper that the kids had their work published in. And so that's how I ended up having a poem in there. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, I was encouraged, you know, because somebody wanted to publish it. And so I, uh, yeah, I don't know if I guess I was encouraged in other things, but that was the thing that I was probably best at. Do you remember uh, what besides, uh, that piece besides skiing. was? <laughs> besides skiing, right? Uh do you remember that specific poem that you uh, that you published uh, in, in fifth grade? Well, I just remember the beginning of it because um, when I was I was interviewed for People magazine about twenty some years ago, and the woman I didn't think she was recording what I was saying or anything, and so I I recited the beginning of the poem and it ended up being in People magazine, which was really kind of irritating. But since it's already been since it's kind of in the public domain now, uh, yeah, I will tell you how it began. It began, um, arithmetic is a dirty trick to play on us innocent kids, counting lids, counting kids, where will it all end? <laughs> and there was more, but that's all I remember is those, you know, the first couple stanzas. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> it was, you know, a poem complaining about having to do math. Yeah, homework. Complaining about the homework. That's that's I, <laughs> right. I could have guessed, man. <laughs> um, that's clever though. The the rhyme scheme and all that. That's uh, that is. If you had, uh -huh. if you had recited that and told me a ten year old wrote it, I I would have. I don't know that I would have guessed ten a ten year old wrote that. You know. Um, uh, so had you always sort of written poems? I mean, did, why do you think you gravitated towards writing poetry in the first place? Well, that is a good question. And I, you know, have asked myself that a, a few times in the past and I, you know, I really don't know. Um, maybe I was attracted to the rhyme. That's possible. Um, and if you use a rhyme, it kind of shows that you're interested in language. And I, I suppose that I was, I, I really, like I said, you know, that was, that was 50 years ago. So it's kind of hard to, to recall. Um, that's a really good question. I, I, I will have to get back to you if I have a better answer sometime. Alrighty. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause you mentioned like the rhyme and then, but the, the you know, in the, the country of here below, which is the collection years that I have, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really more, um, 
it's more you know freeverse type stuff. It's it's I mean there's some right. schemes in there. So it's just interesting that you say that that was because you you know when I when I was a kid that was what poetry was to me too. Is is just you know blah 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 and it all and it all rhymes and it's and it's like a song that you talk right. basically. Um, right. But uh, but yeah. So um, who, do you do you remember uh, any influences or maybe as you got older and started getting into different types of poetry like people that inspired you? Well, I, you know, I had English classes, um, obviously, and we had a pretty open kind of high school where you could, within reason, take whatever you wanted. And so I was able to take, I think half the classes I took were English classes. And that's probably when I really got into books and into writing. Um, but I, you know, I don't really remember reading a whole lot of poetry until I took this class at Wayne State with this wonderful poet. And he, when the class was over, I asked him, you know, if he would maybe correspond with me a little bit so that I could send him poems. And he wrote me these long letters. I, I wish I still had them. Um, and he's the one that ended up publishing some of my poems in their magazine. But he was, he was really influential because he wrote me these letters and he recommended fake poetry that I should read. Um, and there were three books that he recommended, and I still have all three of those. Um, it was kind of bizarre what he told me to read, and to this day, I still kind of wonder what he was thinking. Um, it was very, a lot of it was very experimental. Um, anyway, so that that's what really got me into poetry was those, those well, especially one of the three books. One was an anthology of poetry. Um, called I think it was called The New American Poets, and it was edited by Mark Strand, who was a famous poet, who ended up being one of my teachers in graduate school. But I spent just a huge amount of time poring over that book and studying those poems. And some of them were formal poems. Some of them had you know rhyme schemes and meter, and some of them were in very open forms, very free versy. Um, and that just, that influenced me a lot, got me completely fascinated with poetry and got me writing poetry. And I, you know, I still have some of those poems from high school, believe it or not. And they were just terrible. They always I are, mean, right? <laughs> really, really terrible. And, and I can say that with, you know, a lot of honesty because I have taught high school students before, <laughs> many of whom were way better you know, when they were 16 than I was when I was 16, that's for sure. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I've progressed from, you know, the kind of poet that I was then. That, that uh, I, Some people keep at it even though they don't really become better, and that's, that's probably a problem for the people close to them. Uh, <laughs> well, God bless them anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't mean it that way, um, but... You know, some people get better at things and some people don't. And that's just kind of how it is. Um, anyway, that's that's kind of the, the, you know, and then as I got older, I was influenced by other poets. I studied with one particular poet in college and he was extremely opinionated and he told us which poets to read and which poets to avoid um, and when I look back on him, I think, God, what, you know, he was so narrow minded, um, that, you know, you had to read these certain poets and avoid these other ones. Cause he thought they were terrible. And, um, he was a, 
but he was a big influence on me. Um, and so, you know, I thank him for that. Um, oh, another thing that happened was he was my first, you know, real poetry teacher that I took semester after semester to, you know, take his poetry workshop so that I could just write poems and have those, you know, workshopped by him and by other students. But prior to that, my first creative writing class in college was from a writer named Max Zimmer, Z-I-M-M-E-R. And he was absolutely incredible. And I liked him and I, he had a really cool car and a beautiful girlfriend. And I thought, man, I want to be like this guy. And, and then I lost track of him for decades. And, you know, even when, when you could start searching on the internet, I still couldn't find him. And then finally I found a reference to him uh, being involved in the jazz scene in New York. And that was still all I could find except for a couple published stories of his. And then finally I found him about a year and a half, maybe two years ago at the most. And we correspond all the time. We correspond at least weekly. And I've read, he's published several books. I've read those. He mailed me all his books. I mailed him all of my books. And we're sort of a, we're sort of a little mutual admiration society. Yeah, that's, um, that's really cool that that, and, I mean, you know, that gap and I mean, how many years was that between when you guys, before you guys reconnected, yeah. And, you know? Yeah. Like, so like about 40 years. Um, and it's just, it's incredible. And he does not remember me, which kind of cracks me up. Um, and he does, there seems to be several things he doesn't remember from that time, but um, one of them was me. And uh, so, you know, I've refreshed his memory on many things. Like he would tell, tell me what, you know, mountains to go drive around the places in rural Utah that he thought were the most beautiful and he would have parties at his house and the other students would come. And I remember all of this very, very clearly. And anyway, so we have, you know, reconnected and it's just been absolutely wonderful. And he's so praiseworthy of my work that it's, you know, it's meant so much to me almost more than anybody else praising my work because he was the one that got me going in the first place. Um, and he's remained a devoted writer and so have I. Um, so it, it, that's, that sounds like you, you, a lot of your influences mostly then are people that you've met, um, or people that you, that taught you, uh, superiors of yours more so than like, you know, like, like if you start listing off classical poets or, or more, you know, modern poets. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I you know, I definitely took a lot of classes. I was, you know, and I was I guess I wasn't that open-minded to like every kind of poetry or anything, but I was devoted to writing poetry and I knew from early on that I had to study poetry all the time in order to get better as a poet. And you know, I've taught off and on for many years and that's the one thing that I try to, you know, grind into my students' brain is you've got to read, you know, way more hours a day than you write. That's how you're going to get better. It's not just, not just sitting around writing. You have to study what's come before you, you know, going back centuries and then know what's going on in the contemporary scene. Um, and then find your own voice in the midst of all those other voices. And, you know, that's like the, 
the most wisdom that I can impart to any writers is to just tell them to read a lot. So yeah, I had teachers and they influenced me a lot, but I think it was really all the reading that I did on the side. Um, not, you know, in other words, not just the reading that was assigned to me in classes, but just, you know, just being a wide ranging reader and wanting to absorb as many things as possible. Um, and I, I still wish that I had, you know, learned other languages and read poetry in other languages. I have a little bit, but not, not very much. Um, and I think that would have been a good influence on me. And I know it's not too late, but I guess I'm just too lazy to do it now. Well, you know, reading, they say, is, uh, is, is for a writer is like charging your batteries. You know, if you haven't done it in a while, you're going to be struggling to, to get anything down. And I've found that to be yep, true. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, are you, are you a writer, Alex? I don't really know anything about you. Yeah. Yeah. I do write. Um, I have, uh, I do, I don't know if you'd call it poetry, you, you uh, but I have, uh, 10 <laughs> books on Wattpad now. Um, and, uh, uh-huh. and I sure hope I'm getting better because I've been doing it since 2005. So if not, then, uh, but I just do it as for fun, man. I like, like I, to be perfectly honest, that is the first time I've told anybody about that. I've never told anybody that I published my stuff on Wattpad. And then I have a novel that I put out and, uh, my second one's being worked on also all Wattpad stuff. I've got a couple of stuff, uh, stories going on, ton of short stories on medium, um, like a hundred and over like 150, over 150 now. Um, so yeah, so really? yeah, wow. yeah. So I've, uh, that's a lot. But is that something that like I or other people could look up and then read? Is it under your name? Uh, it's under my pen name, which uh, which I'll uh, I'll it's it's Adrian Carver, Adrian with an E. Um, and again, I've never really told anybody about this. Uh, I mean, I I mentioned it to some people. I show beta readers and things like that. I have an editor down in North Carolina who was actually on the podcast almost exactly a year ago. Um, but oh, really? uh, but it's just something you know. It's, I don't feel, man, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet to be trumpeting, you know, to, to be telling a whole lot of people about it. But since you asked, <laughs> thanks for asking. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, uh, I will, I will. Do, uh, you, do you work with, do you work with like a freelance editor, somebody that you don't know that you just send your work to and they, they give you, you know, feedback? Well, yeah, that was, uh, but it was, there was some website that I, it was like a freelance editor website where you put, you, you say, Hey, I'm looking for a freelance editor. I can't remember what the hell it was called, but then I got a whole bunch of ones saying, Hey, I'd be interested in, in uh, editing your first novel. And, um, and she seemed like the most professional and had the best background. So I ended up going with her and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm very happy with her. I haven't talked to her since last fall. I haven't sent her anything, uh, since then, but, uh-huh. um, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy with her. So. That's so, great. I mean, you, you probably know why I'm asking you that question, right? Uh, <laughs> is, well, are you, do you think you know her? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. I, I work as a freelance editor. And so I'm just always interested in other people who have editors. Um, and I've had editors, you know, at the different publishing houses that have edited my books. But the whole editing process has always been fascinating to me. And I work with people all over the country that I've that I've never met. Uh, poets and fiction writers and people that have written memoirs. And it's been really, you know, it's been really good for me. Um, It's not necessarily good for my writing, honestly, because if I spend several hours a day editing other people's work, I have kind of don't have quite as much energy for my own work um, because I'm not one of those people that gets up in the morning and, and does their own writing. I, 
I do my writing usually from five o'clock to seven o'clock in the evening. Um, and I, that's what I've done for many, many years. And so sometimes I'm kind of low on energy by then. Um, but, but it works for me. I like to, rather than starting out, you know, with kind of a blank slate in the morning, you know, just get up, have a little caffeine and start writing. Um, I like to, you know, have all the different things that happen during the day and the, the news that I hear and the, you know, people I see on the street and, and sort of, sort of absorb all of that into my brain, into my consciousness, and then write, you know, starting around five o'clock. Um, and that, that works pretty well for me. I know you didn't ask me about my writing process, but you're, you're hearing about it anyway. Yeah, no, it was on the list. So thank you. That was, yeah. uh, we would have got, we, yeah. I would have asked it's, you eventually. It's people so. always ask about, you know, and do you use a pencil or a pen or a computer? <laughs> you know, all of those funny questions. Um, but anyway, it's the writing process. It's fascinating. And I, I talk to other writers about it. Um, just to, because I'm just always curious about how other people do things. Um, I have one great story for you about writing process. Um, I met Joyce Carol Oates many, many years ago in Vermont, and she had, she lived, lived then and lives now in Princeton, New Jersey. And she was on her way up to this writer's conference that I was working at, and her husband drove, and she sat in the back seat of the car with a typewriter on her lap. And, you know, I think from Princeton to Vermont is about four and a half hours. So she, you know, told me after I met her, she said, oh, yeah, I just sit in the back seat of the car while Ray drives us everywhere. And I write. And and I noticed that when I when I helped her out of her car when she arrived at Bennington College, um, that she had put a typewriter down. And I could see it sitting on her lap when she put, when they pulled up in the car and she put it down. And as she got out of the car, she introduced herself and then she looked at her husband and she said, so Ray, what did we see today? <laughs> <laughs> because she never looked out the window. Wow. That is, um, I mean, I sure hope that's not the only way she could write. Cause that would be like, I have to be in the back right. seat of a car with a typewriter on my lap. <laughs> that I would never get anything like, done. <laughs> yeah. It's like that. The people who you can't get your kids to sleep, and so you put them in the the you know the little car seat and drive around in the car. That's you know, like the, anyway. So then she, when she gave a reading that night, she I mean this this woman is just out of this world. She um, she's giving a reading and she stops, reaches into her purse, pulls out a pen, and starts writing on the sides of the pages as she flipped them over, you know, reading this short story, because the short story was typed out on pieces of paper, and she started writing something the whole rest of the story. She just kept writing and writing and writing, and she's still reading the, story, the other story fine. But when there was a Q&A afterwards, you know, somebody said, Ms. Oates, what were you writing? And she said, oh, I had, another, I had an idea for another story, so I started writing it. <laughs> that is absolutely insane that she she is reading and writing simultaneously. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Um, then, but wait, but wait, it gets even better. Then somebody asked her about her writing process. And she said, well, I have five typewriters side by side on a countertop in my house in Princeton. 
and I don't use a chair. I just walk back and forth from typewriter to typewriter, and one usually has a novel in it, and one usually has a short story, and one a poem, and one a book review, and then the other one could be, you know, a letter. I'm writing a letter to somebody or an essay or whatever. And she said she just goes back and forth all day from typewriter, walking back and forth, typing, you know, a story and then a poem and then whatever. Um, and she took people's jaws dropped in the audience. Like you have got to be kidding me. Um, but she has published, you know, over a hundred books, well over a hundred books. So that kind of gives you some idea as to how she's done that. Yeah, that is, I mean, <laughs> I suppose when you get to that level, it's almost like an autistic level of, of it has to be this way because this is how I can be productive. And that's a really great way of doing right. it is to be, I mean, most right. people are working on things simultaneously so that you don't get, if you get burned out on one project, you can jump right over to the next one. But I don't think they're right. going around. They have a separate laptop for each, <laughs> you know, uh, for each project. Um, that's really fascinating though. So, but, but you just, you just are five to seven in the evening for the most part. Do you have like a word count that you aim for? Oh no. When you're a poet, you don't usually have a word count. I mean, I, I don't know of any poets who do that. Um, but I just finished writing a short story, um, two days ago. And that was pretty interesting because I don't usually write fiction, but I, I had just come to a, I was just stalled with poetry and I was lying in bed. I have insomnia and I was lying in bed one night and I had an idea. So I got up and I wrote it down and then I went back to bed. And then the next day I, you know, had just went from the notes that I had written down and started working on this story. And I spent about, about a week on it, I guess. Um, and every day I would, I was just trying to write one paragraph a day. It's not a very long story. Um, but every, I, and then I would stop at the end of a paragraph because, uh, I know a lot of fiction writers that do that. They, they, they know what's going to come next. They're pretty sure they know what's coming next, but they purposely stop themselves. And Hemingway used to advise other writers to do that as well. I've heard that advice from many people Just stop before you're quite done so that you can start there the next day. And you won't be a blank, your brain won't be a blank slate the next day when you go to continue on with your poem or story or novel or whatever. And I was just shocked at how well that works. Um, it worked for me beautifully. The story was really kind of fun and kind of easy to write, but that's not how I do poetry at all. I just struggle to, you know, write five lines of a poem. And, you know, sometimes I write know 30 in a day but usually it's way fewer than that and usually i'm spending most of my time revising um because i'll write one draft of a poem and that'll usually take several days and then i usually revise a poem about 30 30 to 60 times i would say um somewhere in there i mean many 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 times i just you have to be obsessed if you want to write really good poems or at least i do you want to write a really good poem you have to just stay with it and not be lazy um and not move on to the next one until you've you know done everything you possibly can to make this one you know that particular one as good as possible and 
and I knew that's not how it is for everyone. I realize that. Um, but that's, that's kind of how it is for me. So I end up, I do more revising than I do actual writing. Um, but revising can also be just generating entirely new work, you know, just, I sometimes will write a rough draft of a poem. And by the time the poem is done, you know, a couple of weeks later, there's only one line or one word <laughs> that was in the original. That's so fun. <laughs> and, that, and that's it, you know, um, cause you just keep going and you keep, and you know, I'm always realizing what I wrote the previous day. It was just so terrible. Um, but if there's one phrase or one line in there that I like, then I keep that and try to try to build from there, um, which is the same thing I tell the poets whose work I edit. I say, you know, that your poem really begins halfway down. Just throw away the first half and work on, you know, use the second half as the beginning of the poem you're eventually going to write. Um, and people, you know, often say, oh, yeah, you're right. That, you know, that's when it became interesting was on the 14th line. And that's where I can tell it became interesting because that's where it became good. Um, so, you know, there's just so much to the process and everybody does it differently. And just because Hemingway advised people to do that doesn't mean it's right. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just so interesting to be writing a writing fiction instead of poetry and just doing it differently and actually taking someone else's advice because that's not something I do very often. Are you, uh, are you planning on getting that published, the short story? Um, yeah, I am. I, uh, I'm in a poetry workshop and we met last night. And so I showed it to the other poets because sometimes the poets write fiction or, you know, something else. You you don't have to write a poem, but they were, well, I would say they were as enthusiastic about this story as they've pretty much ever been about any of my poems. So that was a really good sign. Yeah. Um, and they were incredibly helpful. Um, I hadn't had a poetry, I hadn't been in a poetry workshop in about 30 years. And these poets, they, Two of them live in Cambridge, which is just the other side of the block from where I live. And then one of them lives, oh, about an hour away. And they just really bugged me until I agreed to do it. And I said, I don't, I don't need a workshop. I write every day anyway. And I trust my opinion now. And I don't really need other, you know, I was just defending myself and just really trying to say no. And they just kept harassing me. And so finally I said, yes. And it's like the best thing I've done. Uh, that was about exactly two years ago. And we meet once a month. And even though there's only four of us, we usually, last night we met for four hours to go over. And only, oh, that's right. And one of them didn't show up. So we edited, you know, we workshopped two poems by those two guys and one very short story by me. And that's how long it took. That's how, you know, detailed of work we do. And then, you know, it leads to topics about, you know, like how do you, you know, why this title and, um, you know, and what, how do you begin, what's the best way to start a story? What's the best way to end a story or a poem or whatever. And so we have these really fascinating conversations and we talk about other 
other poets work and, and so on. And, you know, and then we're done and we open a bottle of wine and, and just, you know, gossip. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I would have expected the wine to get open at the beginning of the, uh, of the workshop to sort of loosen the tongues. <laughs> well, okay. It, it usually does. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to condone that practice. Well, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, <laughs> Um, anyway, it's just been so good for me because I need to finish one poem per month that is good enough that I'm going to show to these three other writers who are all, they're incredible writers. I mean, these guys are so good and they're such good critics that it's, you know, and even though I edit for a living, I feel like I'm almost out of my depth with these guys because they're that good at reading other people's work critically and then talking intelligently about it, you know, without being really negative because we're never, we're very rarely, you know, negative enough to say, this is crap, throw it away. Why are you wasting our time? You know, (laughs) we don't ever say that. Um, But we are critical, you know, definitely critical. If you weren't critical with each other, then, that it's just a mutual admiration society and that nobody gets better. I don't think, you know, um, so have you thought about cha- turning that uh, meeting into a podcast by any chance just to, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it might not be, I mean, maybe just to try it, you know, it might be an interesting thing to record. I don't know. Just, just an idea. Uh, you know, I haven't thought about that. That's really an interesting idea. Um, I will, I will mention that to them. I, you know, the thing I would worry about is that we would become self-conscious and, you know, we wouldn't joke around. We really joke around a lot. And although that would make the podcast more interesting, wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, it doesn't have to be the actual <laughs> editing session. It could just be the the four of you talking, you know, about you just, it could be a separate entity, but just with the same group of people, you know, you'd still have your meeting, right. but then also do right. the podcast. The, the reason I ask is because everybody has a podcast nowadays. So you guys might as well too. Um <laughs> But, uh, um, yeah, but man, you'd have, to, you'd have to, but I would think that other people would get bored by it and that you would need to go in and edit out the uninteresting parts and then just splice together all the, you know, the most interesting or the funniest parts to, you know, to make it palatable and interesting to somebody else. Cause otherwise it would just sound like you're listening in at a, a party because that's kind of, hey man, kind of what parties are interesting. We have so like. much fun. Well, that's true. Parties are interesting. Um, unless you get, you know, cornered by somebody that wants to tell you about the dream they had last night or, you know, or wants to complain about their job endlessly, then, then that, that probably would not be a very good podcast. Yeah, well, you never know, man. I mean, it really depends. Uh, but, but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, just thought I'd throw that out yeah. there. Uh, but um, I've uh, I, I I had to ask you about this because, and I got to say, the reason I reached out to you to do the show is um, this was completely random. One day, I'm, I'm a Cheryl Crow fan. Um, I, I do I like Cheryl mm-hmm. Crow's work, and I was looking up uh, just some wiki. I was down the Wikipedia rabbit hole one day, and uh, I was I was looking at uh, her so the page for her song "All I Want to Do," and it said it was based on uh-huh. a poem, or it was it wasn't based on a poem. The lyrics are the poem, pretty much. And, uh, and, uh, that's where you came up. Um, your poem fun, which is in the, the collection that I have, the country of here below, um, which you published Uh in 1987 was your first, uh, collection. And, uh, 
it, she this this I mean I'll let you tell the story because I want to hear it from your perspective. But basically, she found that poem randomly and uh, put it to to this song that she'd been working on, and then it became her first major hit, and it was all right. over the radio for like I was in elementary school when that hit, and I remember hearing that song. I mean, it's you know you know twenty five years ago now, but that's uh, it's a great freaking song too. It really is, and those lyrics. <laughs> Uh, really make the song because it's it's just it gives it a soul that that um, you don't often hear in pop songs because it's about these two regular people just sitting in a bar wishing that they had a more interesting life. Um, uh, so could you just tell tell us how that came about? Here, I'll, I'll put it this way: Could you first tell us how the poem "Fun" got written, and if there was really a William or a or Billy or Mac or Buddy or whatever his name was? And oh, uh, yeah, no, and yeah, then tell absolutely. us about how you found out that Cheryl uh, had uh, decided to use that that poem really because it, it was a really random occurrence uh, as the lyrics to that song that became so huge. Right. Yeah, it was very random. I was like the luck. I continue to be probably the luckiest poet in America, you know, because I was able to quit working for quite a long time, you know, because of the royalties from the song. But I had written the poem called Fun in 1984 when I was in the PhD program at University of Utah and there was a fiction writer named Bill Ripley who was a real character to say the least um, a good writer but a complete wild man and I was at his house one night and we were staying up way too late having way too much fun and um, at like, you know, two in the morning, I said, I've got to go home. I've got to get some sleep. We were both, we both taught freshman composition at the University of Utah because that was part of our teaching fellowships. And so I had to teach a, you know, a freshman composition class to to mostly Mormon students at, I think, eight or eight thirty in the morning. And it was already two and we were still drinking beer. And I said, I have got to go home. I, I, this is it. I'm, I'm out the door. And he said, Oh, come on, when all I want to do is have a little fun before I die. <laughs> and, and I liked that line. And so I went home and I didn't, I just went straight to bed. And then in the morning I got up, went up to the campus, taught my class, came right home, wrote down that line and then wrote the entire poem in, in pretty much one sitting which I never do. And also, you know, to write a poem that you have, that you make almost no changes to. I mean, I've just told you about my revision process, which is insane. I realize, um, but that poem just kind of came out. I still have the copy that I typed up, um, that day. And, um, it's pretty much unchanged. And then i I believed in that poem and I sent it out to probably, I think I, I actually still have a log of all my submissions and rejections and acceptances to literary magazines. And I, I think the last time I looked at it, the poem was rejected by eight or 10 different magazines. So nobody even wanted to publish it. But then when I was putting together my first book in 1986, I put that poem in it because I still believed in that poem and Nobody was going to tell me not to put it in my book, even if nobody wanted to publish it in a magazine. And so I put it in there and then it came out in the book and uh, Bill was not very happy. I had shown him the poem when I wrote it because, you know, it's, he says his name's William, but I'm sure he's Bill or Billy, Mac or Buddy, et cetera. And 
I had shown it to him and he didn't seem to care one way or the other. And then when my book came out, I gave a reading at a bookstore in Salt Lake and he was there in the, you know, in the front row of the reading. And I read the first stanza of that poem. And then I paused and I looked up and well, I'm not going to tell you what he said, but <laughs> it was uh, extremely obscene and extremely loud. And uh, there were people in the bookstore, like jumping off their seats, like, why is he yelling at Wynn and saying that to him? You know, anyway, so the book came out, the book was published in an edition of 500 copies, um, which is obviously not very many. Although in the poetry world, that's just not unusual at all to have so few copies printed because poetry just doesn't sell, you know? Um, and so the, you know, I never saw the book in a bookstore except, you know, at the university where I taught, or if I would travel to some other city to give a reading, they would stock it in their bookstore. But I never just walked into a bookstore cold and found my book. It was just depressing. When you're a writer, the first thing you do when you go into bookstores, see if they have your books. And so it was so weird that Cheryl's producer, Bill Betrell, and her then boyfriend, Kevin Gilbert, may he rest in peace, um, he, he was the keyboard player and one of the singers on the record. And they took a break from recording the record. And Cheryl had written some words that they didn't like, that they thought were too kind of sentimental, kind of sappy. And they wanted something that they wanted lyrics that fit in better with the songs that they had already written together. And since you know that record, you know that there's several songs about sort of the underbelly of society of, you know, people who haven't done that well or whatever. And so they found my poem and they thought, oh, this fits in really well. And so they bought my book. It was in a used bookstore and they brought it back to the studio and they handed it to Cheryl and said, try singing this to, you know, the music that we already have. And she did and it worked. And they ended up crossing out six lines. The poem is 36 lines long, I believe. And they crossed out six of those lines and then they added in the chorus to, you know, have it take place in LA. And then that was that. And I know what they crossed out and what they added in because I have that. They gave me that copy of, of my book with her handwriting in it. And huh. I still have it, which was really, really nice of them to give that to me. Um, but anyway, the fact that they found that book in a used bookstore in Pasadena is just you know, how likely is that? Exactly. Um, Especially because you'd, you'd never, you yourself had never been able to find it in a bookstore. And just the fact right. that you, you know, that poem was produced by you in a way that you usually don't produce poetry. It was almost like the universe was just like, this needs, this poem needs to be written. It's going to be nine years. And then the fact that Bill hated it after he yelled that expletive at you, you were probably thinking like, oh, Bill, it's, you know, it, not that many people are going to, you know, like, you're about, and then, right. and then another five years later, it's the biggest song in the country. <laughs> He's got to listen to it every time he turns on the radio. Did, do you know, did you ever hear from him after the song blew up and, and, and did he yell another expletive at you? Oh, much, much worse than that. He sued me. Oh my God. Um, for $300,000 um, because he had written the first line of the poem. And yeah, that, and so I never really talked to him again after that. He tried to, he, he didn't sue me. He tried to sue me mm -hmm. and he got, got a lawyer and the lawyer, you know, wrote a letter to me um, 
And that would have been one thing, but when you're suing somebody, you, you go to the place where the money is coming from. And so he wrote to the, the lawyer wrote to ASCAP, which is the performing rights organization that I belong to. And he also wrote to A&M records, um, you know, who made the record and Warner chapel music, which is the music publisher. And so they immediately froze my royalties and I had just quit my teaching job because I was making enough money from royalties to live on. And then suddenly my royalties are frozen for a year and I've got to hire a lawyer because my former best friend is suing me for three hundred dollars. So it got, it got ugly and I won't tell you the, the gruesome details, but he, they, he, his lawyer and he dropped the lawsuit eventually. Um, but you know, it was a, well, it was painful for me financially, obviously, but it was just so painful to lose this guy who had, you know, he really had been kind of my best friend and we had helped each other, you know, with writing and, and with through the, some hard, very hard times that we both went through. And, and then, you know, to have him do this to me, it was just, you know, it was heartbreaking. Well, and it's um, all because he didn't want you to leave when you guys were drinking one night in college too. <laughs> That, that that's just life's a trip. Um, oh, that's good, Alex. That's that's good. Well, I never thought of it that way. Well, I, I got to ask, where were you when you first when you got that phone call? And you you were probably like, what? Like, because I mean, I don't think anybody had really heard of Cheryl Crow at that point. Um, that was her first right, really exactly. big hit. Exactly. I was uh, living in North Bennington, Vermont, and I was teaching at Bennington College, which is a really wonderful very exclusive, very expensive college in Southern Vermont. And I was, but I only taught part-time. I didn't make enough to live on. I was also a bartender um, at the same time. And I also worked at a, um, at a country inn um, teaching cross-country skiing. So I had a lot of stuff going on. And I got this phone call from a woman at Warner Chapel Publishing, and she said, "There's this woman named Cheryl Crow, and she's recording her first record. And you know, the guys in her band found your book in a used bookstore, and they made it into a song, and they want to release the song on the record. But we need your permission." And I was so thrilled—not really that somebody had made a song out of my poem, but somebody that even had bought my book and read my poem and liked it enough to do something with it. I was just thrilled. Because that's what it's like when you're a poet. You just, you know, nobody reads your work. And it's even after all these years and five books, I, I still have very few people that, that read my books. And it's, you know, it's depressing. But anyway, um, <laughs> she's, and I said, oh, that's fantastic. And I almost, and she said, um, but we need your permission. And so we need to work that out. And we need, you need to sign a contract. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that, no problem. And then she said, and of course, we will pay you. And I was still so just joyous that somebody had liked my poem that I almost said, oh, you don't have to pay me. Oh, man. Oh, well, thank God that didn't, thank God you didn't go that far. <laughs> and so um, then, you know, we had this conversation and the other really funny thing about the conversation we had was that 
I said, have you heard the song? And she said, yeah, they, you know, recorded a rough demo of it and it sounds, it sounds amazing. And, and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, like, is it a happy song? Is it a tongue in cheek song? Like the poem that I wrote, is it sarcastic? Like sort of like the poem I wrote, you know, like I wondered how they had treated, how they had made a song out of, you know, this kind of unusual poem that, sort of seems to sort of be making fun of these guys in the bar and not really necessarily being on their side and saying, you know, they're good guys and the rest of the world is, you know, assholes or whatever. But um, yeah, because the song kind of it really changes the perspective. The poem is obviously two men, whereas the song from Cheryl's perspective, it's definitely it's like this attractive 30 year old woman with this ugly dude named (laughs) Billy. And that really changes the dynamic <laughs> and, and the, the lines that they omitted. You're right. It's like, it's not, it's just sort of like, we may be down and out, but we're, I'm still sexy and we're going to have a you know good freaking time here in this bar. And you know, this couple comes in and then they omit the most of the stanza that talks about the couple that are dangerously close to one another. And it just, right. it really changes right. the whole thing. Right. And see, it's, it's so funny when you say that because other people say that sometimes I never think of it as being from a woman's point of view. I always think of it as two guys sitting in the bar because that's how I wrote it. Right. Right. You know, and I wasn't in a bar and there was no car wash in Salt Lake city where I wrote it. I, I made everything up, you know, except for the name Bill, Billy, you know? Um, and so anyway, so I, yeah, I never think of it as being from her point of view or a woman's point of view, but anyway, I said to the woman on the phone, I said, well, you know, I, that, I wrote that poem kind of tongue in cheek. How does the songs, you know, what about the song? And she was just quiet for several seconds. And then she said, we knew that. We knew it was sarcastic. And I could tell that she, <laughs> she was lying to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. But she was the music, you know, she worked for the publishing company. So that doesn't mean that she knew a lot about music or that she might not even have heard the song for all I know. Um, but it was just, it just cracked me up that I could just tell that she did, you know, she was trying to stay on my good side because I hadn't signed on the dotted line yet, you know. Um, and then um, I, I, I contacted a lawyer and he because they were not offering me very much money at all. And so I contacted a lawyer and he said, don't sign away any of your publishing, keep all your publishing rights. But I didn't, I was, you know, I was a poor bartender and a part-time teacher. And so I cut a deal that I shouldn't have. And I still, you know, I still made a lot of money. There's no question about it enough that I didn't have to have a job for many years, but I could have made a better deal. Um, but they also had Bill Batrell, the producer, and a guy who's still my friend. He called me to because he could tell that I was being a little bit difficult about the advance and about the publishing deal, and and he was the one that had found the book and you know that liked my poetry, and so he called me and and he wasn't trying to cajole me into making a bad deal or anything. He just I could tell he just kind of wanted to meet me, you know, and so. I, you know, I got to go to the Grammys and the song became a huge hit and the, but you know, probably the best thing about it is not the money and not the, you know, the fact that I was in people magazine and on NPR and all that stuff. It was that 
I would be driving somewhere in my car and I would, you know, in the summer, the windows down and I would pull up at a traffic light and my song's on the radio and there's somebody in the car, next car, in the car next to me just singing at the top of their lungs words that I wrote. And that is just the best feeling in the world. I mean, it really is, especially when you're a poet and you're not used to having an audience to suddenly have this song played well, all over the world. I, I get paid from 45 countries to this day, wow. you know, um, because the song is played in that many countries still. <laughs> well, it's, it was, it really is. It sounds like it was a golden ratio of a poem with how the way it came out. And, and it was definitely a golden ratio of a song where everything just kind of came mm-hmm. together. So, I mean, that doesn't, I mean, it's ubiquitous. It still is one of those things that even if people aren't sure what it is, if you start singing the chorus to them or humming it, they immediately go, Oh yeah, I know that. So, um, that's a level that that, you can't get any higher than that. That's the highest level you can get to the highest level (laughs) of public awareness. Um, that's fascinating, man. Um, uh, I gotta ask you, uh, I wanted to ask, looking at my notes here. Um, I'll jump down. I, I want to talk to you more about what you've been up to lately. You just published Mars Poetica, which is a collection. You just put that out last year. Um, yep. And uh, where are you teaching now? What's what? Is, what is your what's your life like these days? Oh no, I don't teach anymore. I did off and on, you know, for for some years. Um, but after, you know, I quit. I quit my teaching job when the royalties started rolling in. And oh. I went for so long without a teaching job that I knew it would be kind of hard to get another one because you send in a resume and you haven't had a teaching job for 16 years and there, you're not going to be as likely to get that job as other people that were just teaching, you know, at present. So, um, so no, I haven't, I just, I teach sometimes when I get invited to a college to give a reading and they ask me to sit in on a creative writing class, that kind of thing. Um, but no, I, I work as an editor, um, editing, you know, I'm a freelance editor. As I said, I edit novels and poetry manuscripts and memoirs and just all kinds of different books that people are trying to get published and they need somebody to help them. And so that's what I do. And, you know, it is, it's like being a teacher because um, I'm always telling people, you know, read this novel. This will help you understand what you're trying to do or read this poet because they're doing a better job of what you're trying to do and you can learn from them. And so I, you know, I am kind of a teacher, but this way I don't have to sit in on the committee meetings and the faculty meetings and, you know, deal with all of the crap that goes along with, you know, being in, um, in academia. So, um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm, I'm editing and, you know, I write every day. Um, and I, I enjoy Boston and I, try to get up to Vermont. I, uh, my wife and I still own the house that I, that we used to live in up there. So I go up to Vermont. I was there last week and I'm going next week so that I can be in a quiet place and get more writing done. It's very loud where we live here, right outside Boston. We live on a bus line and it's Mm. just, it's hard to concentrate here. Um, but I go up to Vermont and see my friends there and, walk around in the woods makes me happy. Um, and I read a lot. I, you know, it's just, it's funny because I'll read for hours a day, you know, reading some budding novelists work that I'm editing. And then as soon as I'm done, 
if it's not five o'clock yet in time to for my writing, then I I'm always reading a novel. I have you know a huge library and I haven't read all the books, and so I'm always finding somebody new. And you know, read, I mostly read, I read poetry, of course, but I mostly read novels. Um, what are you reading right my now? Spare time. I gotta ask. Right, right now I'm reading a novel by David Lodge called Paradise News, and um, it's the fifth, let's see, fifth novel in a row of his that I've read, um, because I liked the first one I read so much that I just decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to read all his books and just see what that's like to read. He's written, I think, 15 books or something, and I'm bound and determined to read all of them. Um, he's a, he's a British writer. He's, I think about 80, 75, 80 now or something like that. Still writing. Um, he writes, um, social satires. So they're really funny books and they all take, almost all of them take place largely in England. And I just, I, first, I don't know why I'm so fascinated with British novels and British society, but, but I am, I, you know, I'm not a royal family follower, but. Um, I, I love reading. Uh, I love seeing the different vocabulary that they have in England than we have here. That's. I don't know why. I am endlessly amused by that. Um, and I even mark sometimes. I like underline words in British novels just because they're so amusing that I want to remember <laughs> them. You know. Anyway, that's that's what I'm up to. Not. Not a terribly exciting life. I go to a lot of poetry readings. There's just an absolutely huge number of writers here. Um, I mean, there's 67 colleges in Boston. And, you know, all of those colleges have creative writing. So they all have writers teaching at them. And I have, you know, I don't even know how many poets. I helped put on a cocktail party for writers a few weeks ago. And my friend and I invited 125 writers because apparently that's how many writers I know here. Um, and so, you know, I'm part of the writing scene and I go, I'm going out for lunch with a really good writer friend of mine tomorrow. And uh, it's just, it's so nice. Something you don't really have in Vermont. There's just not enough, not enough people in Vermont to have a real writing community. Right. So but it's here, quiet. Here so. there is. And it's, you know, it's just a, it's an incredible environment. Um, you know, you go to a poetry reading and there's a bunch of famous poets there that you, if you lived in Vermont or somewhere rural, it would take you 10 years to see that many poets in in one room. And so I've, you know, I've made a lot of friends and I already had friends here. So it just feels really good to be in a, in such a vibrant writing community. Yeah. It sounds good to me. And, man. It, and yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, you, you achieved it, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're doing your freelance editing thing, but I mean, that's, that's you're your own boss for that, I would assume. And, uh, and oh, yeah. you, you get to write every day, you network with people and you can even go up to the woods to, to get some peace and quiet and concentrate on your writing when you need to. So, uh, yeah. that's, that, that's, that's the life right there, man. Yeah, it is. You're right. And I, I, I have to remind myself of that all the time that I am luckier than most people and. You know, um, my wife has a really good job, so we're, we're comfortable, you know. Um, I, I got spoiled. In, we're spoiled, in fact. <laughs> well, hey, you know, the, the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with with being content, man. I mean, like, like, uh, and it's not like you did nothing to get there. I mean, you, you've, you earned that. Right. You know? um, what, I, I got to ask, how'd you meet your wife? 
Oh, we met at a, an art opening in an art gallery in North Bennington, Vermont, when I lived there. Um, let's see, about four years after I taught at Bennington College. And I, I lived over in the, the other side of Vermont at that time. I lived in a log cabin in Marlboro, Vermont, but mm. a lot of my best friends were over in Bennington. And so I went over to Bennington for an art opening and she was going to NYU at the time in New York. And she came up to this art opening because she knew some of the same people that I knew. And we met there and then there was an after party and we both went to the after party and I asked her out on the date and, and then the rest is history and we're still together 22 years later. What does she do for a living? Uh, she works in marketing in in Boston. Oh, okay. So she, she commutes into downtown and does, she's worked for several companies over the years. Um, she's a very private person, so I'm not going to tell you what company she works for. That's totally fine. Just, that was a totally spontaneous <laughs> question. Um, but uh, uh, just a couple more questions here, and then we got to wrap up. Um, yeah. Uh, are, there, are there any modern poets that you admire? Like, I mean... I, you mentioned earlier that like poets don't usually make a lot of money. There's some exceptions nowadays. Like there's the Instagram yeah. thing that's going on with, I'm going to mangle her name, but I believe it's Rupi Carr, uh, the Indian yeah. girl. She's Canadian best selling. Right. And then there's another one named RH sin. I believe he's from Jersey actually. Um, and he does really oh, well. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I, you know, I don't really don't keep up with, I've read some of her poetry. And it's just so horrifying. That, yeah, I mean, um, I hate to you say can, it. People, you can call me a snob if you want to, but I would rather be a snob than be reading that stuff. Um, it's really pretty terrible. You know, I, I remember reading Rod McEwen and some really bad poems, Peter McWilliams and some other poets that were super popular back when I was in high school, you know, and and I remember liking them. And I think that was kind of a gateway into good poetry for me. And so... I shouldn't, you know, I'm not complaining about other people liking Rupi Kaur. I'm just saying that that's not something I'm going to spend my time with. Um, there are other, you know, better poets who are very popular, like Billy Collins, and I, I know him a little bit, and Mary Oliver, who died recently. Yep, yep, um, love she, her. They were huge. Both those, both those poets sold, you know, tens of thousands of books, which is very unusual for a poet, and they both were, you know, very successful and very, well, he still is very financially well off just from the sales of his books, not to mention, you know, getting paid a ton of money to give readings and, and so on. Um, and, and Mary was huge. I mean, she, she would get, I think, like I heard that she was sometimes getting $20,000 to give a reading for an hour, you know? Wow. Um, so, so there are, yeah, so there's, there's very popular poets. I, am a fan of the <laughs> more serious poets, shall we say, the people who have, you know, really studied poetry and who write, whose poetry is just incredibly crafted and they have studied the art all their lives. Um, there's a poet here in Cambridge named Frank Bedart, who is 78, I believe, and his collected poems just came out last year. And I am lucky enough to be friends with him. And I think he's one of the, the best living poets there is. Um, there's a woman named Louise Gluck that lives here that is just extraordinary. And I don't know her. She's a kind of a recluse, but um, she's amazing. Uh, there's a poet named Robert Pinsky that lives in Cambridge also um, that used to be the poet laureate of the United States. That's for right. A couple of years. And, and he I was know, on the Simpsons at um, one point. 
Yeah, and he was on The Simpsons, exactly. He's a he's a wonderful guy, and we I hang out with him a little bit. Um, when I first moved here, I ran into him at a reading, and I said, "Hey, Robert, how you doing?" And he said, "Ah, when I hear I heard that you've moved to the area. Where do you live?" And I said, "Somerville." And he said, "Ah, Somerville, the Brooklyn of Cambridge," <laughs> uh, <laughs> because. Somerville is much more for it's we're I'm right next to Cambridge. I can see it from my window right now, but you go over to Cambridge and everything costs twice as much. So that's why a lot of a ton of writers live in Somerville, um, including his, his daughter. Um, but there, yeah, there's just, there's so many, you know, wonderful poets and also the people that I was in the PhD program with in Utah that are, you know, obviously my age, early sixties, and they have all, well, not all of them, but most of them are extraordinary poets who have published a, a number of books. And so I follow their careers very closely. One of them is named Kathy Fagan, F-A-G-A-N. And she's just an extraordinary writer. Um, I, I mean, I could go on for an hour about the, the poets that I that I like. And I like a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of dead poets going back to Milton, Spencer, Shakespeare, um, and then I, I was probably more influenced by 20th century American poetry than I was by anything else. And that's, that's normal. I'm a 20th century person, you know. Um, but I still read a, a lot of those poets, Galway Canal, Sylvia Plath, um, and Robert Mowell, and Elizabeth Bishop, and you know, many other fine poets. But I still read, you know, not every day or anything, but, you know, pretty often when I think, Oh, you know, there's this poem by Elizabeth Bishop. I want to read that again. I've read it 500 times, but I always learn something new. Um, it's also something when I'm having trouble writing poetry, I just pick up somebody's book and start reading. And that, it kind of gets me into that consciousness of poetry. It gets you into a different, what they used to call headspace um, when I was in high school in Michigan. Um, and it, it helps my writing just to read, to read poets that are really good and, you know, whose work I can learn something from. And I don't think that Ruby Cower is somebody that I can learn anything from except how to become a millionaire, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Hey, if it gets kids, you know, <laughs> reading those other people, you know, if they're like, Oh, if I like this, then maybe I'll, you know, then, I mean, I guess that's one way of doing it. Right. But, um, Right. I I, I yeah, think she's terrible exactly. too. To be perfectly honest, and it's it's baffling. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, hey, you know, pe- like you said, people can like what they like, right? Um, right. What uh, I gotta ask you. This might be a little specific, but um, do you you said twentieth century poets? Do, um, do you like Charles Bukowski at all, or like what? What are your thoughts on him? Because he was the I first guy funny, that I read. I had a funny feeling you were going to say that. Um, yeah, I like Bukowski. I mean, a lot of people don't because they just think he was a goofy drunk, you know. Um, but some of his poems are really astounding. And uh, I think, you know, part of it, I was not huge, a huge fan of his at first because I was, well, I was even probably snobbier then than I am now. But I just thought these are thrown together. They just look like they're written once and they're not revised. And but I also thought of that about Ginsburg. And when I go back and read Ginsburg now, I realized that he, there was a lot more control and a lot more craft in his poems. And I think it was, you know, coming to appreciate Ginsburg later in my life that caused me to go back and read a lot of Bukowski again. 
and I always loved his novels, but you know, I always thought, ah, these poems are too thrown together. And, but boy, some of those poems are, they're really extraordinary. Um, and they're extraordinary for the moves that he makes in the poems and not so much for the language, but they're, you know, but they're moving and that's, there's a lot of contemporary poetry that is incredibly finely crafted, but it doesn't, it doesn't move you in any way. It's all you say is, wow, that was really well-written or boy, I can't believe they rhymed that with that got away with it. But, you know, Bukowski, you're just like, Oh, you know, his poems about heartbreak, you know, and that that's good. Poetry has to be emotionally affecting. It can't just be well-written. Um, but I also don't like it just thrown down on the page either. And it took me a long time to realize Bukowski was better than I thought he was. Um, so, Anyway, that's my that's my take on him. Huh. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he he. The reason I asked is he was sort of the first poet that I ever read that made me go, "Oh, it doesn't have to be." You know, I guess it was sort of the moment that you had with that anthology that you you mentioned, where we're sort mm-hmm. of like, "Oh, there's right. all sorts of ways this can take shape." And 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 you know, I mean, you're right. It did seem like he just kind of would vomit his thoughts out onto the page, <laughs> and uh, but I mean, you know, you read. I mean, there's there's the cliche ones like "There's a bluebird in my heart." Uh, and uh, the right. one where he's talking about uh, go all the way, I can't remember the title to it. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, he's got one called "We Will Taste the Islands in the Sea." That's like it's it's probably six lines, maybe. And he's just talking about how he wants how he wants a girlfriend, and in six lines he conveys that, <laughs> and it's really beautiful. And then the title mm-hmm. is its own thing, so it just it all works. Um, but anyway. Right. Uh, do you have a like a? This is my last question before we wrap it up. Uh, but do you have a favorite oh, yeah. poem, either of yours or just in general, like other some a poem that somebody else has written? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> I don't have a favorite poem. I don't think. Um, yeah, that's like I don't have a favorite poet either. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, I have many, many poems that are very dear to my heart. Um, and well, actually there is one. I've got the book right here. It's called One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Um, and a friend, I worked with a, a songwriter, an Israeli pop star named David Broza, and he set this poem to music. And his version is just extraordinary. But the poem itself um, yeah, it's called One Art. It's a, um, it's a villanelle. It's just a, I, I'll read it to you if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> I'm just trying to find it in the book. Here it is. Um, hang on one second. Here we go. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last, or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, 
the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. Win Cooper, thank you so much for joining <laughs> me, man. This is this has been a thank great conversation. So um, it's been wonderful talking to you, Alex. Really appreciate it. Well, uh, hang on the line. I'll give you a, a, a proper goodbye once we're off the air. But um, is there anything real quick before okay. we take off? Is there anything you want to uh, promote? Uh, anything you want to tell the listeners? Uh, no, I just, well, I guess I would, my last book came out last year. It's called Mars Poetica. It's published by White Pine Press. And it's available, you know, on Amazon. Or you can order it from your bookstore or you can order it from the press. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of it and I would love to have, you know, three people read it. That would be great. I will be one of those three people. So (laughs) I will check it out. Thank you so much. Um, I will be back next week. Uh, author danger Slater is going to be joining me. He's a a horror author, um, publishes primarily on Amazon. Really looking forward to, uh, to, uh, talking to him. Uh, so I will be back then. Everybody have a great week. This has been American Winer on podcastdetroit.com.